All right, make sure you have a Bible. We're going to look up a number of different verses tonight. And if you need some notes, there's still some up at the front. There may be some in the back. One of the things I hear a lot as a pastor in talking with people about things going on in their life and talking with people about things they're struggling with is people saying something to this effect. I don't know exactly where it is in the Bible, but I know the Bible says, and then they fill in the blank. And I'm a nice guy. So when people say that and they fill in the blank with something that the Bible doesn't say, I usually don't embarrass them or expose them or mock them or be mean to them. But a lot of the time I, I find myself wondering, why do you think the Bible says that? Is that what grandma always said? Is that something you picked up on Touched by an Angel on TV? Is that, where, where, are, you, where are you getting some of this stuff from? So let's just have a little, a little test about some things that may or may not be in the Bible. I'm just going to put a list up on the screen. And uh, this is, this is not, we're not going to shame anybody. We're not going to make you vote or, you know, stand up or show your hands or anything. I just want you to think about some of these statements that we're going to put up. Number one, God helps those who help themselves. No, not in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says you can't help yourself, and God helps those who can't help themselves. Second, God won't give you more than you can handle. Nope, it's not in there. In fact, if you look up 2 Corinthians 1.8, it says the exact opposite. Paul said, God gave us so much more than we could handle. We were burdened beyond life itself. We thought we were at the point of death. We couldn't handle it. So, no. We're all, aren't we all God's children? Eh. Ephesians 2 does say that we are all children of wrath, meaning God is angry at all of us in our sin, but I don't think that's what most people have in mind. When they say, aren't we just all God's children? No, not a biblical idea. God works in mysterious ways. Hmm. I'm not saying is it true or not. I'm saying is it in the Bible or not. And the answer is no. It's a line, sort of a ripped off line. It's not even exactly right, but it's from a hymn written by a guy named William Cooper. And uh, so no, not exactly in the Bible. This too shall pass. Unfortunately, no, that is not in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, kind of close, kind of the same idea, but it does not say this too shall pass. Number six, cleanliness is next to godliness. Oh, how I wish that one was actually in there, but... (laughs) It's not in there, so scratch that one. Are you seeing a pattern here? I don't want to give the rest of the answers away, but, you know. Hate the sin, love the sinner. No, not in the Bible. The lion shall lay down together with the lamb. Now I'm just kind of messing with you because it doesn't say that. It says the lion will lay down with the wolf. Not the lamb. Same idea, I know. I'm just making a point. You've heard that a hundred times. The lion and the lamb, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Well, that's not what it says. It says the lamb and the wolf. Uh, When we die, we become angels. You get your wings. 
Christmas is coming up. You can find it on It's a Wonderful Life, but you will not find it in the Bible. And if, if every now and then, Corey and I have a, a conversation, and I say to Corey, if I die and you preach my funeral, or he says, hey, if I die and you preach my funeral, and we say, you better not say this. And I'm telling you right now, if I die and you preach my funeral and you have it in here and somebody says something about I'm an angel, I'm going to come back and haunt you forever. <laughs> and it's going to be bad, 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 bad news. Do not say that. It is not true. If you were here Sunday, you know the last one. We talked about this. The love of money is the root of all evil. No, the Bible does not say that. Take your Bible, turn to the New Testament, way to the back to the book of 1 Timothy. Find chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a passage we'll come back to later tonight. Verse 9 and 10. Paul says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not just money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we talked about this Sunday. If you fall into worshiping money, if money and wealth becomes your little g-god, it will lead to a thousand other sins in your life. You'll commit a thousand other sins if you get this one wrong. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if you just flip a few pages to the right, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, you find kind of a a parallel passage. Hebrews 13, verse 5, says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. It doesn't say money is totally unimportant. It doesn't say don't ever think about money or talk about money or don't ever plan in regards to money. It just says you need to keep your life free from the love of money. So worshiping money is something that the Bible calls us to fight consistently. And you see it in the Old Testament. You see warnings in the book of Proverbs about the greedy man, about the person who throws his lot in with wicked people because they think there's going to be profit for them on the other side. And this is something we've sort of just got to get square in our mind. As we think about the spiritual discipline of giving, what we're talking about falls under the broader heading of what the Bible says about money. And just to be honest, let's just start by admitting when you look at church history, we haven't always been, we meaning Christians, big tent, big umbrella Christians, haven't always been real good on this issue. And so I'll put some pictures up. You can think about, for one example on the left, some of the great cathedrals and some of the great basilicas and some of the great churches in England that were built during the medieval period, and they were built by the church selling indulgences to people, promising people, if you pay money to us, all your sins will be forgiven, or all the sins of your loved one will be forgiven. And obviously, there's all sorts of theological error involved in that, but I hope you can see the greed involved in that, in just totally fleecing people out of money that they didn't even have, especially at that point in history. And we look back on that, we read about... Uh, people like Tetzel, we'll talk about Tetzel in a few weeks in our next series, who would go around selling indulgences for the Pope and he'd say things like, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Give us your money and they get out. It's that easy. And you think, that's so crass, that's disgusting, it's dishonest, it's wrong. Well, Protestants, and I hate to lump ourselves in with these other 
nut jobs on the screen, but I mean, they're, they get lumped in with us. Televangelists, it's the same scheme. It's the exact same scheme that they fought about in the Reformation, and Protestants are the one who have fallen into it. People who don't agree with Roman doctrine fallen into the exact same error of, all you've got to do is send us your money, and there's going to be some sort of spiritual benefit for you. It's a magical, automatic, instantaneous transaction. Send us that seed money. Send us that faith gift. And send it into the ministry. What they don't say is, we're building not large cathedrals, but large mansions and large homes and buying nice cars. It's the exact same error that they fought about in the Reformation. So we need to get our minds square on money. And tonight we're focusing on the issue of, what does the Bible say about the spiritual discipline of giving? So we're going to start off talking about Old Testament and then move to the New Testament. Here we go. What is the spiritual discipline of giving? Well, to start off, the Old Testament lays the foundation for everything that we're going to talk about tonight. Lays the foundation. There's just basic foundational truths and principles you see in the Old Testament that even if the specifics don't carry forward today in exactly the same ways, the principles we look at and we say, this is, this is part of what it means to be one of God's people. So you can look at Genesis 4. In the story of Cain and Abel, right from the beginning, God's people are bringing gifts to him. They're bringing offering to him. And we can debate about Abel and Cain and what they brought and why they brought what they brought. But the point is, they're bringing this gift, making some sort of contribution to God. You can look at Abraham and Melchizedek. Dr. Schreiner mentioned that in his video in Genesis 14 where Abraham pays this tithe to Melchizedek after a battle. He gives him this gift. And so you see some of these principles. Here's a few thoughts about the Old Testament. The tithe was one part of what Israel was called to give. It was one part of it. So take your Bible and look at Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus 27, we'll start in verse 30, and we'll read a couple of verses here. Leviticus, third book of the Bible, way at the front. Leviticus 27, verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy, meaning it's set apart to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. Meaning, if you for some reason want to keep part of this crop that is supposed to be part of the tithe, there's a provision for that. You just got to pay the difference some other way and add a fifth. Every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth of animal and all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And what it's saying there is you say, wait a minute, I thought he could just make a substitute and redeem it. What he's saying here now is this idea is as your cattle are passing through and you're numbering them off, like you got numbered off in high school, you remember one, two, three, one, two, three. Well, you're counting them off one, two, three, and you're going to ten, and you're selecting what your tithe's going to be. Don't set the lineup up so that the three-legged goat falls at number ten and he's the tithe. Don't try to be cute with how you present this tithe to God. Don't give him the worst of what you have. Don't make this substitution for it. If you do substitute it, uh, if you do make a substitute, both it and the substitute must be holy and it shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel. 
on Mount Sinai. You can look at Numbers 18. Numbers 18 basically explains, again, one of the things Dr. Schreiner mentioned. This tithe in the Old Covenant was given to the Levites, the people in charge of the tabernacle and later in charge of the temple. That's where the tithes went to support this tribe. Remember, they didn't get a piece of land, a big, huge block of land. They got some cities here and there. And part of their living was to be made off of this tithe. And, interesting, God says to the Levites right here in Numbers uh, 18, not only are the people going to tithe and give that to you, but you're going to tithe to me off of what they tithe to you. You have to tithe also. You don't get exempt from that just because you're the, the priestly tribe. And so God is taking this serious. The tithe is part of what Israel was commanded to give. Just interesting, and we don't have time to get too in the weeds in this, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's something called a festival tithe. And you give it every three years. You don't do it every year, but you do it every three years. You're supposed to give a percentage. There's something in Deuteronomy called the poor tithe. This is on top of everything else. And you give this poor tithe, and it's basically like Israel's social welfare program. It supports the poor. There's something in the book of Deuteronomy about not harvesting all the way up to the edges of your fields. You leave some of that for the poor. You don't get to take all of that. It's not all yours. There's lots of examples in the Old Testament of free will offerings, not just regular things where people are supposed to give every year or the poor tithe or the, the festival tithe or whatever, but just free will offerings. There's some special occasion, and the people are called, if, if you're so moved, to bring and to give some sort of offering. And I think everything that I can read and find and study on my own lines up with what Dr. Schreiner said. Depending on how you add all that up, it really comes out to about 15 to 25 percent that the people were called to give. Did they always do that? No. The Old Testament's clear they didn't always live up to that. But that's what they were called to give. So if you're going to look to the Old Testament and say, look, this is what they did in the Old Testament. God doesn't change. You're supposed to do this for now. There's major exegetical problems with that in the New Testament. He mentioned Galatians and some of the other passages that talk about we're not under that, that covenant or that law anymore. But if you're going to pull that forward, don't pull 10% forward. Pull all of it forward. Like If you're going to pull that forward and say you've got to do it today, well, don't pick and choose which parts you want to pull forward. Pull it all forward. And we're not just talking about 10%. We're looking really more at 15 to 25%. This is important even in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is clear that God did not need Israel to give to him, give anything to him. He didn't need anything from them. At the same time, he's very serious about Israel obeying his commands on tithes and offerings. So let's just look at these two passages because these are important for laying a foundation. Look at the book of Psalms, chapter 50, Psalm 50. And we're going to jump in in the middle of this chapter. Asaph wrote Psalm 50, and Asaph says in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, all that moves in the field is mine. This is God just reminding the people, look, I'm not mad that you're not bringing your offerings. 
I'm mad that when you bring your offerings, you actually think you're giving me something that belongs to you. It doesn't belong to you in the first place. It's all mine. And God's saying to him, the question really isn't how much are you going to bring to me. The question is how much are you going to keep? Because all of it belongs to me. Verse 12, if I was hungry, I would not tell you. The world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? I don't need these things. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. He's challenging their heart as they come to bring these sacrifices to him. Saying, look, you've got to remember, all of this is mine. None of it's yours. And you've got to remember, I don't need this. I don't need anything from you. This is not like the pagans coming to Zeus in his temple and bringing him these sacrifices, and that somehow makes Zeus stronger. I don't need what you're bringing me. The point in you bringing it is not about me having my needs met. It's about you being detached from something that could very easily steal your heart away from me. We'll talk about that in a minute. Flip to the last book in the Old Testament. Look at the book of Malachi just to see how serious God is about this. Malachi is written to the Jews who had been sent into exile and then brought back to the promised land right at the end of this old covenant period. And if you look at Malachi, let's just look at chapter 3 and start in verse 6. The scriptures say, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, pay attention to the punctuation. This is a quotation. The people hear that, and they say, how shall we return? Meaning, we worship you. We serve you. What are you talking about? We need to return to you. We're with you. And God says, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? We didn't break into the temple treasury box. We haven't snuck in and stolen anything. In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is more need. Look, even if you say the specific Old Testament instructions about tithing are no longer entirely applicable today, you learn something about what God thinks about his people giving here and it's that God takes it really seriously. From the people's perspective... They're just falling a little bit short of what God's asked them to do. And who could blame them? They're exiles. They've been living out in a foreign country. They've been abused and persecuted. They just made the long journey back to Judah. They don't really have anything. And in their minds, what many of them are probably saying is, look, there's going to come a time when we can pay all these tithes. But right now, things are tight. Money's tight. We've got to get established. Just give us a minute to get our feet underneath ourselves, and then we will do what we're supposed to do. And God looks at that and says, you're robbing me. It's not yours. All of it's mine. And when you keep what is supposed to be given to me, 
given back to me, it's the same as you stealing from me. So God takes it seriously. What about the New Testament? The New Testament builds on the Old Testament teaching about this spiritual discipline of giving. giving. Meaning, just because we're in the New Covenant, we don't just totally ignore all of that stuff in the Old Covenant, but the New Testament is building on it. And let's talk about how that happens. Number one, the first church was marked by generous giving. Marked by generous giving. So take your Bible and look at Acts chapter 2. One of the things in Acts 2, verse 42 to 47 we read is this description of the early church. And one of the things that Luke tells us about the early church is, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's something that people do when they get it in their brain. The stuff that I have is not my stuff. It's God's stuff. And if God wants me to hang on to it for now, I hang on to it. And if God wants me to liquidate right now, I liquidate. But it's not even mine. I'm just stewarding it for God. And I'm going to do what he wants me to do with it. Look at chapter 4, just so you know it's not a one-time thing. Chapter 4, verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Listen. That's not like socialism before Marx came along. That's just a bunch of people who loved Jesus and understood all the stuff we have really isn't our stuff. It doesn't belong to me. God has loaned it to me in effect to manage it and to use it. And it's up to him to decide what I do with his money. It's not my own stuff. You see the same idea if you flip over to Acts 11. Just to, again, make the point that this is is a theme throughout the book. Acts 11, verse 27, In these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They take up this offering. They take up a a relief offering, a missionary offering, and they send it to these people who are suffering because they understand what we have really isn't ours. It's God's, and it's Him, His decision as to what we do with it. So the church is marked by generous giving. Building on that some more. Paul viewed giving as a spiritual gift. You can read that in Romans 12. He lists out several spiritual gifts, and one of them is giving. And some of you look at that and you say, well, if it's a spiritual gift... Not everyone has every spiritual gift. Maybe I don't have the spiritual gift of giving and I don't have to give. Not how it works. And you know that's not how it works. Paul also says that acts of mercy are a spiritual gift. That doesn't mean you don't have to be merciful. You do have to be merciful. Paul says later in Corinthians that faith is a spiritual gift. That doesn't mean some of you don't necessarily have to have faith. We all have to have faith. What Paul's saying in putting it in this list is some of you are blessed in a special way so that you can give in unique ways. Maybe that's part of what it means to be this spiritual gift. Next, 2 Corinthians 
8 and 9 has several important principles for Christian giving. And I didn't have room to put these on your notes. And I'm going to list them out. And there's no way you're going to have time to write them down. So this would be a great time to pull out your cell phone, make sure it's on silent, and take a picture of what I'm about to put up on the screen. Because these are the principles you see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's probably the most important passage in the New Testament as you think about giving and what the spiritual discipline of giving is. So snap a picture and we're just going to roll through this. Giving is not only for the super rich. Paul says to the church in Corinth, if you want to give, you should be like the churches in, uh, in Macedonia, in this other place. They gave out of their poverty. It's not like they were rolling in the dough and they just sort of took some off the top. These were poor people and they gave out of their poverty. So it's not just something for super rich. Second, it should be sacrificial and generous. That's what uh, Dr. Schreiner was talking about in the video. Meaning, when you're practicing this discipline correctly, you giving requires you to make a sacrifice. Meaning, what you're giving is of enough substance that you're not able to do something else that you otherwise could have done with that money. And I'm not talking about like eating a Taco Villa burrito once a week. That's your sacrifice. I'm going to give up a, you know, a, a green burrito, chicken burrito once a week and sacrifice that as my gift. I'm talking about a real sacrifice. If you kept that money, you could spend it on something really great. You could do something really great with it. But you're giving it away and you're making a sacrifice to give it. It should be done with joy. And this is one of those issues where some people say, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. I'm not very cheerful about it, so I'm going to wait till my attitude changes, and then I'll start giving. And I say, you got it totally backwards, right? That's not how, that's not how spiritual things work. First you obey God, and then your heart follows. You don't wait for the emotion to be there to obey. You obey, and as you obey, you pray that God would change your heart. And I can give you a few examples of that um, that are super, super important when you think about this issue of, of joy. Um, how many of you just love going up to the hospital, being in hospitals? Nobody, right? Nobody likes doing that. Don works at a hospital, so he likes it. He gets paid. doesn't count. Uh, nobody likes going to the hospital, and one of the things you have to do from time to time as a pastor is go to the hospital. And I'll just be real honest, I don't like doing it. No one likes going to the hospital. But every time, every time, every time that I go visit someone in the hospital and I go with the attitude of, hospital again, I'm so tired of the hospital, I hate the hospital. When I leave, I think I'm glad that I went. I needed to go. Maybe I encouraged the person. More than likely, that person encouraged me in some way. But that's an example of obedience first, and then the emotions follow. You don't sit around and say, well, when I feel like it, I'll go. No, you just go. And God changes your heart in the process. The same thing's true in marriage. I talk to people all the time, and you've heard this stuff all the time. Well, I just don't feel, I don't feel the same way. So we're, you know, we're going to go our separate ways. We just don't feel the same. Well, that's probably because you haven't been doing the things that God has commanded you to do in your marriage. And if you will do the things that God commands you to do in your marriage, over time, your heart will change. I promise you. 
I promise you, your heart will change. And you don't sit back and say, well, I'm just going to wait for God to zap my heart and change me, and then I'll stick it out and fight for things. No, you fight for things and you stick it out, and then God changes your heart. Statistics show that that's true. That's true. Statistics show that couples, married, married couples who fight and they're thinking about divorce, if they stick it out, five years later, something like 90% of them are glad that they did it. Like you do the right thing and then your emotions change. It's the exact same principle with giving, giving with joy. If you're not joyful about giving, maybe you're not giving enough. Maybe you should give more. Maybe you should be more regular in it. Maybe you should be more sacrificial in it. Maybe you should be more generous in it. Obey, do what God's calling you to do, and the emotion follows. Giving flows out of a relationship with God. Paul says in these chapters that uh, giving flows from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It's not that you give in order to establish some sort of relationship with God. It's that you've already confessed Jesus Christ and you know him and you follow him and giving flows out of that. We give to follow the example of Jesus. Paul makes the point that Jesus, who was rich, became poor for you so that in him you could be rich. He gave and he made a sacrifice, giving up the treasures of heaven to become a servant among us so that we in turn could be rich. It promotes healthy dependency. It should be done responsibly. I really love this part in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul lays out all of the character qualifications for Titus, right? Like in Paul's day, they don't have a Better Business Bureau stamp of approval. You can really trust these guys. But that's kind of what Paul's saying is, look, we're not taking this to buy Lamborghinis. We're not taking this to go sit on the beach in, uh, uh, over in the Mediterranean somewhere. For real, these are stand-up guys you're giving the money to. You can trust these guys, and that's still true today. You should do it responsibly. You should give responsibly. It's a result of God's grace, and it should result in God's glory. Really, really, truly, if you want to wrap your mind around the spiritual discipline of giving, Second Corinthians 8 and 9, you just need to work through it. You need to read through it. You need to pray through it. You need to think about it. You need to read through it asking questions. What, is it, what would this look like in my life to give joyfully? What would it look like to make a sacrifice? What would it look like to be generous? What would it look like for all of these things to take place in my life? So I'm going to let you look at those two chapters. Uh, we don't have time to read them because of the length. How do we do it? How do we actually practice this discipline? Several thoughts. We just talked about some of these. You should give willingly, thankfully, and cheerfully. Willingly, thankfully, cheerfully. Again, the point in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that obedience comes first, and then God changes your emotions as you're obedient in this area. Secondly, we should give intentionally and systematically. Intentionally and systematically. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.1, you can look that up. That's Paul giving the church in Corinth instructions about when they should give, how they should collect it, how they should be prepared. And what he's saying is you need to be intentional about this. Don't just roll into church on Sunday morning say, oh, who knew that we're taking an offering this morning? Oh, I didn't know. Let me pull my wallet out. Let me see what, oh, I got a, got a little bit here. I'm going to take this and I'm going to put it in. Like there's no intentionality to that. 
That's just sort of coming in at the last minute, cracking it open, saying, "Uh, well, I guess I got this. And Paul's approach is way more intentional, saying, no, 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 you need to have a plan. You need to decide what you're going to give, not at the last minute before the plate comes by or you walk by the box, but at the beginning of the week. Like, you've got a budget, and you've set money aside, and you know this is what what I'm giving. One of my favorite stories is from uh, Miss Carol, and she tells me this story, I love it, that when she first started dating, right, not even like married or engaged, but dating, her uh, then-to-be future husband looked her square in the eye and said, we just need to get one thing straight here. Are you a tither? Not like, you know, what's your favorite food or your favorite hobby or whatever, but like that's the intentionality that we're talking about, right? Right from the get-go. This is what we're going to do. We're going to be faithful in this. We're going to do this. So let's get on the same page and be intentional and let's have some sort of system. I think for most of us, if you're going to give in that way, it requires you to have a budget. And I, I, don't like, I don't like everything Dave Ramsey throws out, but one of the things I really, really like from Dave Ramsey is the idea that a budget is you spending money on paper before you actually spend it. So that you don't come to the end of the month or the end of the week or the plate's coming by or you're walking by the box or whatever, and it's just an afterthought to give. Oh, I, what, can I, what can I throw in there? But way at the beginning of the month, you say, this is how much money I'm going to have this month. This is what my expenses are going to be this month. And the very first expense at the top of my budget is tithe, offering, whatever you want to call it. And I am being intentional and systematic, and I have a plan for that. Next, I think that we ought to prioritize our church and then give to other ministries and other needs. And I say this because of Matthew 16. I don't think we need to look it up. It's when Jesus is talking with the disciples about who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father. And he says, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus' plan for evangelizing the world and making disciples all over the world, his plan was not a Christian radio station. I'm not saying you shouldn't give to a Christian radio station. I'm just saying that's not the plan. And the plan is not, let's have as many and as big of evangelistic rallies as we can have. Evangelistic rallies are not the plan. Church is the plan. And I don't care if it's back in the book of Acts or if it's today. Things look different. Some churches have buildings. Some churches rent buildings. You see that in the book of Acts. Some churches, you know, have different situations. But churches cost money. They don't just happen on their own. And Jesus' plan to make disciples of the whole world is the church, people living together in community, worshiping together, praying together, studying together, devoted to the apostles' teaching, not saying that anything that they have is actually theirs, but sharing with anybody who's in need. That's the plan. So you prioritize your church, whatever your conviction is on this this number, you fill in the number on the tithe, right, the percentage. You figure that out. The priority needs to be your church. That's true for me and for anybody else. And then on top of that, you say, okay, now I can also give to this. 
Now I can also support this ministry. Now I can also be involved in this. But the priority is the church. Next, we, we ought to ask ourselves, how much of God's money am I going to keep? Rather than asking ourselves, how much of my money am I going to give? Totally different mindset, right? Totally different. The one, we talked about Zacchaeus Sunday. The one mindset says, okay, if you're Zacchaeus, you say, okay, I'm, I realize I'm a, I'm a crook, and Jesus doesn't want me to be a crook anymore, and so I need to make things right. What's the bare minimum? What's the bare minimum of what the old covenant laws tell me to do? This, okay, 10% tithe. Uh, we'll do the festival, festival tithe. I'll catch up on that, and I'll pay this poor tithe. What's the bare minimum? And Zacchaeus doesn't do that. He just shoots it way over the moon. And it's not that he's trying to earn brownie points with anybody. It's just that he's been totally set free from the mindset of what's the bare minimum I have to do to make God happy here. Grace has t- completely transformed him, transformed him. And then when it comes to paying people back that he stole from, the old covenant law says you pay him back full restitution plus 20%. And Zacchaeus says, I'm just going to do it fourfold. Whatever I stole fourfold. And it's just a picture of a man. Again, don't get caught up in the numbers even that Zacchaeus throws out. Just see the picture of a guy who isn't really worried about how much of my money am I going to give to God or others. Instead, he's saying, how much of God's money am I actually going to keep? And how much of it just needs to go back to him for his plans and his purposes? Um, I'm going to acknowledge to you that there's some gray area here. Okay? I've talked to church members before. A guy that was a member of the first church I pastored. He was an older man, an army vet. He was as rough as rough gets. And he got saved late in life, and we baptized him. And one of the first things he wanted to talk about was giving and, and tithing. He had lived a very rough life and physically not able to work anymore. And he said, look, I get this many dollars from the, from the government. I don't have savings. I don't, I don't get anything else. This is what they send me every month. That's all I've got. And my rent costs this much. I live in government-subsidized I mean, he didn't pay much for rent, and I got to eat a little bit, and here's the cost of the medicines that I take, and here's what's left over. And he's doing the math, and he's saying, I, I do the math on basic necessities. I'm living as cheap as I can. I'm not eating crazy. I'm paying for my medicine. It's going to be really hard for me to, to pay a 10%. Well, I, I don't think you need to get all caught up in that. I don't think that needs to bother you. You need to give. You need to have a plan and a budget, and you need to set aside something at the beginning that you're going to give, and it may mean that you have to sacrifice something, but it doesn't necessarily have to be this magical number, percentage. On the flip side of that, I've known an awful lot of people who make so much money that for them to give 10% of this astronomical sum is of absolutely no sacrifice to them whatsoever. And I've known some people who have sort of patted themselves on the spiritual back saying, well, that guy over there, he's not even giving 10%. I cannot believe that. I'm giving a full 10%. And what I want to say is, you know what? You should probably live on 10% and give 90% because your 10% is an amazing amount of money. 
you can't get too caught up in the numbers here, and you can't get caught up playing a comparison game. You've got to go back and have the mindset, how much of God's money do I need to keep? Not how much of my money am I going to give to God. One more example. In Oklahoma, we met a lady. She started coming to our church. Her name was Rosa Avia. And uh, Rosa started coming to our church, and I got to know her. Super nice lady. She grew up in Central America uh, in squalor with absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And her parents could not afford to raise her. So they basically pawned her off on an American diplomat, an ambassador who was uh, assigned in this country or stationed in this country. And the agreement was, you take her and you're going to get her American citizenship. That's what they thought was going to happen. You're going to take her away from us, help her to get to the United States and have a better life. And what it turned into was she became their slave at the embassy for multiple years. And it was always a carrot dangled a little bit further out. Oh, yeah, yeah, one of these days, one of these days, one of these days. And that just went on for year after year after year after year after year working for these people. And to make a very long, movie-worthy story short, somebody found out about it, rescued her, got her to the United States out of that situation, um, just in the providence of God, crossed paths with an immigration lawyer somehow down in Central America. This guy got her to the United States. She had nothing. She knew nobody. She spoke no English and came here and totally made a life for herself and worked hard, worked in restaurants, owned a couple of small restaurants, uh, did odd jobs, cleaning houses, whatever she could do to provide for her kids at that time and her family. And she came into my office and she visited with me one day. And she said, Pastor, I feel I'm, I just, I'm, I'm struggling. I need to talk to you about it. And I feel like I'm not being faithful in the area of money. She said, this is what I make. And this is what my expenses are to live here in this town. And this is how much money I'm sending back to my family so that they can eat. Because if I don't send it back, they're not going to eat. And this is how much money I'm sending back to my family so that the girls can go to school and not have to be pawned off on somebody like I was as a young child. And by the time she listed all these other things that she was doing, she said, it's hard for me sometimes to come up with 10% to give to the church. And my counsel is, I think you're okay. I think you're good. Now, you need to give. You need to give to your church. You need to be faithful in that. But you don't need to get locked down on some percentage. And some of you in here need to hear that side of it. You need to hear the, look, if you can't hit 10%, really, really you can't. You don't need to beat yourself up about that. But I'll be honest with you, I think most people can hit that number. And I think most people can blow that number out of the water. And the question that you need to come back to is, how much of God's money am I going to keep? Not necessarily how much of my money am I going to give to him? Why should we practice this? We'll wrap up with this real quick. We should do these things. We should practice this spiritual discipline. Number one, because God is a cheerful giver. He loved the world and he gave his son so that we could have life. God gives. We want to be like God, so we give. Two, it's an act of worship. Philippians 4 talks about that. Giving is an act of worship. Number three, Jesus said your heart is connected to your treasure. That's in Matthew 6. 
And lastly, this is again something that Jesus said. It's not in the Gospels, but the book of Acts. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Just a few reasons why you should practice this discipline. Let me end with this reminder. Um, Every one of us has an inner Pharisee that can come out really quick. And when you start to think about this issue of giving and am I being faithful and what should I do and you're thinking about your budget, it's super easy for you and I, for all people, to fall into the trap of thinking, okay, I've got to hit some magical number so that I can be right with God. I've got to do this in order for God to be happy with me. I've got to be obedient in this certain way to earn it with God or to be right with God. And you've got to just stop and remind yourself These are not things that we do. Bible reading, prayer, giving, evangelism, all the things we're going to talk about. These are not things that we do in order to earn our way with God. These are things that we do because we want to enjoy God in the relationship that we already have with him. And we talked about that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Giving flows out of your relationship with Jesus. First you have a relationship with Jesus And then all of these disciplines flow out of it. You want to read God's word. You want to talk to him in prayer. You want to be a person who gives. But you've got to get that square. And in the subtitle of this series, we're calling it Spiritual Disciplines. And then the subtitle is The Means of Grace. It doesn't mean this is how you earn God's grace. right? As soon as you put the word earn in the same sentence as grace, it's not grace anymore. It's just earning. This is not trying to to make your way with God. When we say these are the means of grace, we say this is how we as God's people experience his grace in our lives. When we read his word, we draw close to him. We learn more about him. When we talk to him in prayer, we're, we're building relationship with him. We're not just coming to get things from him and ask things from him, but it, we're entering into a relationship. And this idea of giving is a spiritual discipline. Jesus understands you can only serve one master. You cannot serve two. And of all the things he could have plugged in there, right? All the little G gods we're talking about, he could have plugged any one of those into there and said you can only serve one master, God or children, God or spouse, God or your country, whatever. The one that he plugs in is money because he knows our hearts and he knows how prone we are To fall in love with money. And you read these warnings. Don't love money. The love of money will lead you into a thousand other sins. It's the root of all different kinds of evils. Guard your heart from the love of money. And Jesus says, do not fall into this trap of serving, of loving, of trusting, of obeying money. You can only have one master. And part of this discipline of spiritual, uh, spiritual discipline of giving is designed to sort of wean us off of that God, like to remove that thing from our life. And every time you give, sort of as an act of worship, you ought to say to yourself, I don't trust in this money to meet my needs. I don't trust in money to feel secure and safe. I don't trust in money to make me happy. I don't trust in it, so I'm joyfully and gladly giving it away. I don't need it to have identity or value or security or joy or any of those things because I'm going to find all of those things in God, not in money. So there's the spiritual discipline of giving. 